Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Texas has enhanced security inspections on trucks coming from Mexico, and it appears to be producing results. Three Mexican states have already signed agreements to help stop illegal immigration. After three years, an Ohio professor concludes his quest to defend his freedom of speech after Shawnee State University punished him for not using students' preferred pronouns. How did it end? Twitter is trying to block a sudden takeover. The social media giant adopted a poison pill after Elon Musk said he intends to buy it and make it a private company. The death penalty is intended to prevent future threats to society, but one death row inmate has been in prison for 30 years without incident, leading some to ask, is he still a threat? Three Mexican states have agreed to help stop illegal immigration. It's all due to a new policy from Texas Governor Greg Abbott. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. As illegal immigrants continue to flood Texas's southern border, Governor Greg Abbott has implemented new enhanced security inspections for trucks coming from Mexico. But it means trucks are waiting for hours and lines stretch back for miles into Mexico. Author of America's Covert Border War says the policy has spurred the Mexican government into action. And within a day or two, he had the governors of the Mexican states that adjoined Texan, Texas knocking at his door asking to negotiate something. Abbott has already signed agreements with three different Mexican states. They're pledging to help stop the flow of illegal immigrants in return for lifting the inspections. Governor Campos has provided me with the best border security plan that I've seen from any governor from Mexico. And we are investing more than $200 million in this public policy, which includes a lot of technology, uh, high-profile technology, in order to take care of our, our borders and in order to take care of the commercial trade that we have already among the states, uh, among Texas and Chihuahua. But Benzman says it's not as easy as it sounds. One of the problems here that nobody really talks about is that those state governments are co-opted by the Mexican cartels that are pushing in the opposite direction with muscle, and I mean like gun muscle. Uh, so they're kind of in a, a, a bit of a, uh, between a rock and a hard place, these state governments, especially Tamaulipas, uh, because they may have to, they, they, the, the Abbott administration is on one side, and on the other side are a bunch of cartel guys who are like, hey, you better take care of this. And if those Mexican states don't comply with their agreement to help stop illegal immigration, Abbott can reinstate the enhanced security inspections. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Ohio professor Nick Merriweather's three-year quest to defend his freedom of speech has concluded with a settlement in his favor. Shawnee State University is to pay him $400,000 in damages and attorney's fees. An appeals court ruled last month that the university violated Merriweather's free speech rights when it punished him for declining a male student's demand to be referred to as a woman. The philosophy professor had offered to use any name the student requested instead of feminine titles and pronouns, but the university rejected that compromise. It threatened the professor with disciplinary action, even termination, if he didn't comply. 
In an opinion article for The Hill, Merriweather wrote that he cannot speak what he knows to be false because it would violate his conscience as a philosopher and as a Christian. Twitter announced on Friday that it has adopted a poison pill after Elon Musk proposed to buy the company and take it private. It would make taking over the corporation more difficult. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. Twitter said Friday that its board of directors has unanimously adopted a poison pill defense after Tesla CEO Elon Musk announced to buy the company. The move would allow existing Twitter shareholders to buy additional shares at a discount. That would dilute Musk's stake in the company and make it harder for him to hold a majority of shareholder votes in favor of the acquisition. Twitter's plan would take effect if Musk's roughly 9% stake grows to 15% or more. Yeah, Elon Musk, this is really a playbook from 1980s corporate raider. That's what he's doing with Twitter. I mean, this is really what I believe is going to be the, the first step into him ultimately owning Twitter after a soap opera plays out. The poison pill would reduce the likelihood that any one person can gain control of the company without either paying shareholders a premium or giving the board more time to evaluate their offer. Even if it discourages his takeover attempt, Musk could still take over the company by waging a proxy fight in which shareholders vote to retain or dismiss the company's current directors. Twitter said the plan doesn't prevent the board from engaging with parties or accepting an acquisition proposal if it's in the company's best interests. On Thursday, Musk offered to buy the company for $43 billion, saying the social media platform needs to be transformed as a private company in order to build trust with its users. But because of the freedom of speech issue, and it's become a divisive area that Musk has now inserted himself in, he's trying, as the richest person in the world, to basically own Twitter. $43 billion, he's obviously the only person in the world that can have access to that type of money. Probably about half that will be done in debt. And Twitter, from a corporate defense perspective, the board's back against the wall. Fiduciary responsibility. In the filing, Musk said, I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve the societal imperative in its current form. After Musk announced his stake, Twitter quickly offered him a seat on its board on the condition that he would limit his purchases to no more than 14.9% of the company's outstanding stock. But the company said five days later that Musk had declined. The oldest death row inmate in Texas is scheduled to be executed next week. Carl Buntian was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death in 1991. At age 78, he has been in confinement for more than 30 years. Should he have gotten a life sentence? NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Carl Buntian had an extensive criminal record when he shot a police officer during a traffic stop in 1990. Over the past 30 years, he has remained confined without any significant incidents. The U.S. Supreme Court denied his last appeal in October 2021. Justice Stephen Breyer questioned the constitutionality of the death penalty since Bunchen had already served so many years. Robert Dunham, executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, said killing does make you eligible for the death penalty, but the crime alone is not enough. Under Texas law, for a person to be subject to the death penalty, the state must prove that they will pose a future danger to society. He said that Bunchen's death sentence was based on a prediction that he would be a danger to the prison society if he received a life sentence, and that one of the reasons the death penalty was reinstated 
was the belief that it deters killers from committing future murders. Is that for something to deter, the punishment has to be swift uh, and the punishment has to be certain. And after someone has been on death row, in Mr. Bunchen's case for 30 years, any conceivable deterrent argument uh, goes out the window. Dunham said that over the past 30 years, states that have the death penalty had a higher rate of police officers being murdered. There have been more than 1,500 executions in the United States since 1976, and 579 of them have been in Texas, carrying out the highest number of executions in the United States since 1976. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Unvaccinated Delta Airlines employees don't have to pay more for their health insurance anymore. CEO Edward Bastian announced the company has dropped its $200 monthly surcharge for workers who refused to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. The surcharge ended this month. The CEO said he believes COVID-19 is becoming a seasonal virus, and that's why the company made the decision. Back in November... Delta initiated the health insurance surcharge on its unvaccinated staff, citing the, quote, financial risk placed on the company. It also limited the number of sick days unvaccinated workers could take if they contracted COVID-19. Delta has not said if it has since changed that policy. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved the first COVID-19 breath test. The Inspector COVID-19 breathalyzer was granted emergency use authorization on Thursday. The agency says the test spots chemical compounds associated with COVID infection and can give results in less than three minutes. It's made to be used in medical offices and mobile testing sites, and it's about the size of a piece of carry-on luggage. A study found that the breathalyzer accurately identified positive samples more than 91% of the time and negative samples nearly 100% of the time. But the FDA still advises patients to confirm positive test results with a PCR test. The doors at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue are reopening to the public. Starting today, ticket holders will be able to tour the White House. These visits were placed on hiatus in early 2020 in response to the pandemic. According to a White House statement, the situation will be monitored closely based on recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as other health officials. Anyone who tests positive for the virus or has related symptoms within the last 10 days is advised to stay home. Face masks will also be available for those who request one. The White House also says it expects to host the annual Easter egg roll this year. Democratic Congressman Jim Langevin of Rhode Island is among a growing list of House members retiring by the end of this term. He reflects on the past two decades he spent on Capitol Hill as the first quadriplegic congressman. Here are the details. Democratic Congressman Jim Langvin has been representing the 2nd Congressional District of Rhode Island for almost 22 years. This January, he announced that he is not seeking re-election in the November midterms. Probably one of the most difficult decisions of my life. But um, I felt that it, uh, it, it was time, the, the challenge of going back and forth to D.C. and burning the candle at both ends uh, has uh, uh, been, a, been a challenge. And I wanted to do something that is going to keep me closer to home and uh, have a better work-life balance and uh, be able to spend more time with, with family and friends. Langvin is the first quadriplegic congressman, meaning both his arms and legs are paralyzed. He was paralyzed at the age of 16 when he was in a police cadet program. 
Uh, I was in a, a police cadet program, Explorer Scout program, where I was in the police locker room at the time, uh, getting ready to go on my shift. Two police officers looking at a, at a new weapon that one of them had purchased. The other one didn't realize the gun was loaded, uh, pulled the trigger to test it. The gun went off and the bullet went through my neck and severed my spinal cord. Langevin comments on challenges he faced as a disabled lawmaker. Even when I arrived in Congress, you could tell Congress wasn't quite ready for me yet. Uh, and so there were accommodations that had to be made, things, changes that were made, uh, again, physical accommodations. Others were having an assistant, you know, with me uh, as I'm, you know, navigating the halls of Congress to make sure I can get in and out of uh, room. The lawmaker describes his biggest accomplishments in Congress. So there are many accomplishments I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of being able to work on with my colleagues and getting important bills across the finish line. Langevin's political career lasted over three decades. He was first elected to Rhode Island's Constitutional Convention in 1986 while still in college. He later served in the Rhode Island House and as the state's Secretary of State before getting elected to Congress. The Labor Department's latest report shows unemployment falling in nearly every state and more jobs are being added every month. The Biden administration points to these numbers as an indication of a strong economy. But how does surging inflation factor into the equation? NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. The U.S. Labor Department released a state-by-state -state report today revealing that unemployment has dropped in 37 states, hitting record lows in 12 states. Facing mounting pressure to get the soaring prices under control, the Biden administration is holding on to this piece of good economic news. 7.9 million jobs over the course of my presidency. Unemployment at 3.6%. At are these factors an indication that we're do that the economy is doing well, or are there other factors that we should be looking at to assess the state of the economy? Well, I think overall the economy is doing pretty well uh, right now. Uh, yeah, the low unemployment rate is an indication, but really if you look at the job growth, um, we're not up to where we were before the pandemic, and a big indicator that we haven't fully recovered is if you look at the labor force participation rate. I mean, so far we've talked about unemployment and labor force participation, uh, but you really have to look at, at the inflation rate at the same time. Uh, we've been propping up the economy with government spending that's added to inflation, so it might be good if we could move to try to balance the, the, the budget. And to pay off some of our national debt and to fund new investments that Biden says are meant to support economic growth, the Biden administration is pushing a wealth tax. And while it would only hit the wealthiest Americans initially, it could open the door for taxing lower income folks down the road. This trend was shown in the past. But if we look at the history of the income tax, uh, there's a pretty good chance that once a wealth tax is installed, we'll start asking the question, well, if people who have net worth of $100 million should pay the tax, why not people with $50 million? Why not people with $20 million? And pretty soon, just for fairness, everybody will be subject to the tax like they are with the income tax. So I think the big threat to the middle class isn't what Biden has explicitly proposed today, is the potential for this tax to spread in the future. And President Biden originally proposed this wealth tax in that Build Back Better bill, which we know is now stalled in Congress. And although the White House is trying to revive bits of that Build Back Better bill and revive this proposed wealth tax, it's unclear if there's enough support from Congress to pass it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
Tensions continue in Kyiv after a Russian warship sinks in the Black Sea, and the top U.S. diplomat reportedly says the Russian-Ukraine war could last until the end of this year. Here's more on that story. The Russian missile cruiser Moskva now rests at the bottom of the Black Sea. It was one of Russia's most vital warships. Russia insists a fire led to the sinking, but Ukraine claims to have hit the ship with two missiles. The U.S. today agreed with Ukraine's account. Meanwhile, Russian forces are rapidly building their presence in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky says he expects Russia to increase military action, including the possibility of using nuclear weapons. When they begin to speak about uh, one or another battles or uh, involved uh, enemies or nuclear weapons or chemi some chemical, you know, issues, chemical weapons, they should do it. They could do it. I mean, so they, they can. And Russia this week has formally protested the U.S. arming Ukraine. That came after the Biden administration announced an additional $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. And there may not be a short-term end to this conflict. CNN reports that Secretary of State Antony Blinken told European allies that the war could last through the end of 2022. Coming up, do you want to travel back in time for a bit? Rockefeller Center in New York City opened a roller skating rink for the first time since the 1940s. And it has a completely retro-themed style. The NBA's postseason gets underway. Steph Curry could finally return. And the Clippers suddenly missing their top player. That and much more coming up on NTD News. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is criticizing Black Lives Matter, indirectly calling them hypocrites. That's after a deadly night with multiple shootings in the city. Multiple people were shot and killed in separate shootings on Tuesday night. The mayor appeared on New York One the next day, saying many of the victims and perpetrators were black. He called out Black Lives Matter for not speaking up about gun violence within the black community. I thought Black Lives Matter. Where are all those who stated Black Lives Matter? If Black Lives Matters, then the thousands of people I saw on the street when Floyd was murdered should be on the street right now stating that the lives of these black children that are dying every night matters. We can't be hypocrites. The mayor has been trying to get a hold on shootings in the city by getting guns off the street. He says the city won't be safe if guns keep coming in. Today, the Rockefeller Center in New York City opened its new roller skating rink to the public. It's the first time since the 1940s that the iconic plaza is hosting roller skaters. NTD's Arian Pazdar was at the opening. An old-school roller skating rink right in the heart of Manhattan. Rockefeller Center might be known for ice skating during the winter, but this summer, the skating goes on. The rink is called Flipper's Roller Boogie Palace and is inspired by the famous rinks that started decades ago in L.A. And the new rink does have some of that touch. The skates are, of course, retro, and so is the music. I don't know much about roller skating, so I talked to siblings that grew up next to and worked at a rink in Pennsylvania. We grew up in a roller 
roller skating rink. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, how is this rink here? Is it good? It's amazing. It's I love fun. it. So yeah. much fun. Great yeah. atmosphere, great vibe. Now the skating part is not as easy as it might seem, and some people do fall down. But one pro skater tells me it could be worse. Because in Virginia, like they'll have wooden floors or concrete, and I feel like that's more it's more painful when you fall on that. It doesn't matter if you're a pro skater or a beginner like me. You'll find all kinds of people skating here, from young to old. Tickets cost around $30 for adults and $20 for kids, including skates. The rink is going to be open seven days a week until October. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Families of fallen officers in the Philadelphia area gathered for a special Easter meal. The annual breakfast honors the memories of officers who've fallen in the line of duty. Let's take a look. An Easter breakfast was served at the Sunnybrook Country Club in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania to treat special families from the Philadelphia area. They are loved ones of local officers who were killed or seriously injured in the line of duty. Organizer James Bin said this was their 18th year of hosting the event. This is in honor of the families of these men and women in there who have been killed in the line of duty. And uh, we do it every year, three times a year, Easter, Thanksgiving, and then Christmas. Lieutenant Joseph Zerba was an officer with the Newcastle County Police Department in Delaware. He was stabbed and killed in September 2011 while pursuing a suspect in an auto theft. His brothers said they grew up with a respect for the military and police. Yeah, Joe, he was the youngest of seven, and uh, just the things we, we did together, he and I were very close. We would work over each other's house, we'd go to ball games together, work with my parents, whatever. He's, he's missed every day, and talking about him and talking about stories has really helped the healing for myself and the, uh, and the other family members. We have come in here to support not only the memory of Joe, who was killed uh, over 10 years ago, but also any other fa uh, family members and officers, officers who also made the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty. Terry O'Connor lost her husband, a Philadelphia SWAT officer, two years ago. Their son is also a policeman. I feel like it's a good, nice event to bring together the families that have all gone through these types of things, and it's a reminder that we're all in this together, and we have the support of each other, and the people in this room understand a little bit of exactly what you know I'm going through along with the rest of my family. Known as Holiday Meals for Heroes, the program this year honored 35 fallen local officers. Organizers said their focus was to keep the families connected and moving forward through their grief. Moving to sports news, U.S. star sprinter Allison Felix announced that this will be her final season. With 11 Olympic medals, including seven golds, the 36-year-old is the most decorated track and field athlete in U.S. history. Felix made the announcement on Instagram, saying, As a little girl they called chicken legs, never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined I'd have a career like this. Felix won her 11th Olympic medal last summer as part of the gold-winning 400-meter sprint relay team. The victory broke a tie with U.S. track legend Carl Lewis, who won 10 medals. Felix has been a part of five straight Olympic teams, dating back to 2004 in Athens. She's also won 13 world championship titles. Tom Brady's announcement that he'll return for the 2022 season after previously retiring thrilled fans everywhere. But it also complicated one of the biggest sports auctions ever, 
the sale of the football thrown for his final touchdown. But Leland Auctions announced the sale has been voided by a mutual agreement among the buyer, seller, and auction house. The football was sold for over $500,000 just a day before Brady announced his return. Brady, who will turn 45 in August, is set to become the oldest starting quarterback in NFL history when he suits up this fall. Tonight, the NBA schedule features the final two play-in games as four teams battle for the last two playoff spots. Saturday, the playoffs officially start with all 16 teams in play over the weekend. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Cavs host the Hawks tonight in a battle for the last seed in the East, followed by the Pelicans and Clippers squaring off in L.A. for the same spot in the West. L.A. will be without star guard Paul George, though, who tested positive for COVID-19. The winners' rewards will be facing the top seeds in each conference. Saturday, the festivities kick off with Dallas hosting Utah. This series completely hinges on the health of Luka Doncic, who is doubtful for Game 1 with a calf injury. Doncic has been an exceptional performer in the postseason, averaging 33 points, 9 assists, and 9 rebounds per game in his career. Next, Minnesota is on the road against a surprising Memphis squad. The youthful Grizzlies shocked everyone with their 56-win season this year. Star guard Ja Morant has proved his playoff medal in averaging 30 points a game last year in the playoffs against Houston. The Sixers host the Raptors in the early evening battle. Philly is hoping their star-studded duo of Joel Embiid and James Harden can gel in time for the postseason. And in the nightcap, probable MVP Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets travel to San Francisco to take on the Warriors. Golden State's big three of Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green have played together just 11 minutes this season. But if Curry, who's questionable, is able to go, that'll change just in time. Dave Martin, NTD News. The New York Mets today unveiled a statue of former Met and Hall of Fame great Tom Seaver. Nicknamed the franchise, Seaver played his first 11 seasons in New York, winning three Cy Young Awards and leading the team to their 1969 World Series triumph. The bronze statue measures 10 feet high and 13 and a half feet long and emulates Seaver's famous pitching stride. Previously, the team had retired Seaver's number 41 back in 1988. The former pitching great still holds numerous team records, including most career wins, innings, and strikeouts. Seaver passed away in August of 2020 at age 75. The unveiling ceremony was part of the team's opening day festivities at City Field, where the Mets beat the Diamondbacks 10-3. Coming up, Californian environmental scientists are suggesting that an iconic desert tree shouldn't be considered endangered. But environmental groups say it's threatened by global warming. And graduation season is right around the corner. One Illinois teenager hopes to celebrate her high school graduation at the top of the world. More when we return on NTD News.
Over to the West Coast, environmentalists and state biologists are disagreeing about the status of California's Joshua trees. Should the tree be labeled as endangered or not? NTD's Daniel Hall has what the two sides are saying. State biologists said that the Joshua tree, an iconic desert tree native to Southern California, should not be labeled as threatened with extinction. Their comments come in contradiction to environmental groups that say climate change is threatening the desert species. The Los Angeles Times reported that the final decision on the tree's status is up to the Fish and Game Commission. If they do not list it as endangered, then it will be up to local jurisdictions to define any developmental limitations in the areas the trees inhabit. The renewable energy industry is grabbing up swaths of sun-baked California land for solar development. Despite using the Joshua Tree's land, the developers say mitigating climate change will save the tree. A 158 report released Wednesday said the Joshua Tree is currently abundant and widespread. The report concluded that current state data does not demonstrate that the population is decreasing or in serious danger for the foreseeable future. Environmentalists oppose the suggestion, citing global warming. A final decision on the tree's status is expected in June. A Southern California man pleaded guilty to making a violent threat to a U.S. representative last year. Let's take a look at what happened. I thank the gentleman for yielding because I think someone may be trying to kill me and if they are successful I would like my constituents and my family to know who stopped their arrest. Now half a year later, federal prosecutors said a California man pleaded guilty on Thursday to threatening Republican Representative Matt Gates from Florida. 59-year-old Eugene Hulesman of Thousand Oaks left a voicemail at Gates' Florida office in January last year. Court documents say Hulesman called Gates a tyrant and said, I'm going to put a bullet in you. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Northern Florida said in a statement that Hulesman pleaded guilty to one count of transmission of a threat in interstate commerce. The charge could land Hulesman in prison for five years. Court documents did not give a reason for his threats. Hulesman called on January 9th, three days after the January 6th Capitol protest. The Secret Service previously investigated Hulesman in 2018 for making threats against a former president's family, according to documents in the plea agreement. The specific president is not named. Hulesman will be sentenced on June 30th. Drivers be on guard. Investigators say that thieves are after your car's catalytic converter, and that could cost you a lot of money. Here are the details. Catalytic converters are part of your car's exhaust system that reduce the level of pollution released by the car's engine. The National Insurance Crime Bureau says these converters are increasingly stolen in many states across the U.S., including Texas. The precious metals used in catalytic converters make them valuable. They can be sold to scrapyards for $50 or as much as $250 a piece, making them a prime target for thieves. We went from 2020, we had 1,700 catalytic converters stolen total in 2020. In 2021, we had over 8,000. Because of the price of these metals, this crime's not going away. Benson Liu from Houston, Texas, told NTD he just lost his catalytic converter last Monday in the parking lot of a busy office building. And that was not the first time. Such a thing happened to me once before. 
It was the year before last year. It was another Honda Odyssey minivan. The vehicle's catalytic converter was also stolen. My friend drove Toyota Prius. Last month, his car's catalytic converter was also stolen. Benson's cars are high risk for catalytic converter theft. Police say you should pay extra attention if you own the types of cars with converters on the underside of your vehicle. If you have a Tundra, a Tacoma, Tacoma is very popular, um, the Honda CRV, the Honda Element, um, the Prius, and then the big trucks, the three-quarter ton trucks, the can F-250, the three-quarter ton Chevy Dodge. Those are like the top 10 vehicles. According to RepairPal.com, the average cost of a catalytic converter replacement is over $1,700. Police advise protecting your car from being an easy target, such as getting a steel plate cover for your catalytic converter, spray painting the converter, or getting a vibration sensor alarm. Graduating from high school is a big milestone for any teenager, but conquering the top of the world would be unparalleled. One Illinois teenager hopes to celebrate her high school graduation on Mount Everest. Let's take a look. For me, it's not about breaking records. It's about pushing limits. Lucy Westlake is one of the few top young female mountaineers in the world. She's been climbing since she was seven years old, breaking records along the way. Now at 18, the senior at Naperville North High School in Illinois is pushing a new limit, taking on the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. It's kind of the way of thinking that you have to be like super strong and big to be able to carry all your gear to climb up these mountains. But I mean, I'm proof that you don't have to be, so. Mountain climbing is a sport of endurance, both physically and mentally. At 11 years old, Westlake had to overcome her fear while summiting the Gannett Peak in Wyoming. It's about like a three foot wide path on like glacier. And to one side, there's like, you have a thousand foot drop. The other side, it's a very steep slope to another cliff. So it was like, it was very scary. And being afraid of heights, I was just like repeating in my head over and over, like there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And I made it up and down. And after that mountain, I was never afraid of heights again. I just like conquered that fear. At 12, Westlake set a world record as the youngest female to climb the lower 48 state high points, which excludes Alaska and Hawaii. And at 13, while trying to complete the 50th state high point, Westlake had to give up the last day to summit due to an accident and a storm. That's after climbing for 21 days. We didn't have a chance to summit. We ran out of time and, um, and we were forced to go back down, which was, was really challenging. Like, but Westlake had to accept and learn from the setback. I grew as a person and like became a lot more gritty and just determined. So. At 17, Westlake broke another world record as the youngest female to scale all 50 state high points. Summiting Mount Everest will be Westlake's first time climbing a mountain without her dad by her side. But she says she has faith and confidence. Having trust in your own abilities and then also I'm like a strong Christian so I, I trust God a lot too to like keep my path straight. I believe he'll keep me safe on the mountains. If Westlake makes it to the top of Mount Everest, she'll be the youngest American female to do so. And she would also get to celebrate her high school graduation on top of the world. Westlake hopes her story will inspire other young people to challenge themselves and push their own limits. Westlake took off for base camp yesterday. She says she expects to reach the summit of Mount Everest by end of May. We wish her success and a safe trip home. 
And coming up, violence at the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem this morning as Palestinians hurl rocks and fireworks at Israeli police. Officers had to disperse the crowd and arrest hundreds of people. American exporters can't send their goods abroad because Chinese ships are going back to China without loading up. Who's in control? That and much more coming up on NTD News. Over 100 people are injured and hundreds were arrested after Palestinians clashed with Israeli police at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem this morning. It was the most serious violence seen at the holy site in nearly a year. Violence broke out early Friday morning when thousands of Palestinian Muslims gathered for prayers on the Temple Mount, or what's known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque to Muslims. It is the holiest site for Jews and the third holiest site for Muslims. Israeli police say a violent crowd of Palestinians threw rocks and fireworks at the western wall nearby and at Israeli police. Some of them stockpiled rocks and barricaded themselves inside the temple. Police say they later entered the compound to break up the rioters and make sure prayers could still take place. Video footage shows Palestinians, some carrying flags of Palestine and the Hamas terrorist group, hurling rocks, and Israeli officers firing tear gas and stun grenades. The Israeli Prime Minister reacts. We are working to calm things on the Temple Mount and throughout Israel. At the same time, we are prepared for any scenario. Police say they arrested some 400 people and brought the situation under control. Three officers suffered minor injuries. And the Palestinian Red Crescent Emergency Group says they treated over 150 people. Many of them were wounded by rubber bullets or stun grenades. This is what a Palestinian cameraman at the scene said about the violence. There were many injured people. They fired rubber bullets inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. They were beating everyone. Tensions were already soaring in Israel after a series of deadly Arab street attacks throughout the country in the past two weeks. And clashes at the Temple Mount around this time last year helped spark an 11-day war with Hamas. The U.S. relies on Chinese shipping carriers to deliver U.S. exports. But it seems some Chinese shipping companies may not want to do that anymore. And that's hanging some American businesses out to dry. NTD's Don Ma has the details. Chinese shipping companies are hurting American small businesses. Chinese carriers like Costco and OOCL are shipping more empty containers out of the U.S. than loaded ones. Logistics and supply chain expert Ross Kennedy tells me this has a very negative impact on American exporters. When they can't actually get the goods in the containers moving overseas. When they're not able to meet their contractual obligations and you'll see uh, cash flow issues where uh, because they can't deliver a product they've already bought overseas, uh, then they can't get paid on it for when it gets delivered overseas. Uh, and then they can't buy more inventory, thus they can't make more sales. So it's really a, a pretty rapid death spiral that can happen to these companies. CNBC found in 2021, both Costco and OOCL shipped twice as much empty containers out of the U.S. as they did in 2020. So why are the Chinese carriers doing this? Well, because they make more money shipping goods to the U.S., than from the U.S. So what they're doing is instead of loading U.S. exports onto containers, which takes time and effort, 
They're just shipping empty ones back overseas. It's that import side that the carriers make most of their money from, but so you're talking a significantly more profitable uh, import stream. And uh, now because of that, the impetus is get as many empties on board and back overseas as possible. And that has a real negative impact on U.S. exporters. CNBC found that it is about 15 times more profitable for the Chinese carriers to move imports to the U.S. than exports from the U.S. The U.S. is dependent on the Chinese carriers to ship exports out of the country. If the Chinese companies don't do it, small American businesses that depend on exports could go out of business in a span of months. Cash flow is typically very, very tight uh, in, in the uh, commodities game, whether it's uh, lumber or food products or uh, agribusiness products. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it, very quickly you can find yourself upside down in a cash situation. And In response to the report, Senator John Thune of South Dakota says Congress should pass new legislation to hold these carriers accountable. Don Ma, NTD News. In Paris, dozens of students have barricaded themselves inside a prestigious university to protest against France's presidential election. The occupiers deplore what they call a fake choice between the two candidates. NTD's David Vives has the story. Neither Le Pen nor Macron. This is the message sprayed onto banners put out by dozens of students who took over the Sorbonne University on Thursday. We came to the point where we are just concerned. We're tired of always having to vote for the lesser evil of the two. I think that we're just out of breath with the way democracy is being handled, which no longer suits us. The occupiers were protesting what they say was a dilemma in the runoff election. Macron's first term as president for them proved that he was undeserving of being France's leader. But so is Le Pen with her party's nationalist message. Protesters barricaded themselves inside the university. Doors closed and blocked by stacked chairs, stairways blocked by tables. Police intervened with tear gas to disperse protesters outside. Some students from Sciences Po also participated, such as Gabriel, who supported leftist candidate during the first round of the election. With Mélenchon, we missed the second round by one percentage point. But the fact is, today, the fight lies elsewhere. It will lie on our occupation. On Friday morning, police were deployed around the building to prevent new demonstrations. Some students tried to reach their university, but police blocked the streets. This student, Marianne, was trying to go to the university library to study. This is preventing students, professors and researchers from working in the building and having access to the place. If they disagree, they should have voted instead of doing this. This building, you know, which is an historical building, is kind of being destroyed by people who have, like, political opinions. Sorbonne University and its different annexes, such as here at the Tolbiac district, have been occupied on several occasions mainly by far-left or anarchist movements. Honestly, I've been studying there for like a couple of years now. Um, I can tell you one thing. It's like, it's only an excuse to do this thing. Because like every time there is something, they're like, yeah, you know, let's block it. <laughs> let's stop the others. Let's destroy everything. It's only an excuse, you know. The occupation at the Sorbonne might only be a sideshow, rather than reflecting most young people's attitude over the election. Polls say people aged under 35 votes more for Macron than Le Pen. 
whereas Macron can count on votes from seniors, which gives him a short lead in the race to the presidency. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Up next, Easter is on its way. That means more people flocking to pet stores to buy a bunny to celebrate. But one nonprofit foundation explains why that's not such a good idea. And two Cadbury World chocolatiers have designed a giant Easter egg to celebrate the holiday. We'll take a closer look at their creation after the break. Easter is just around the corner, which usually means higher demand for bunnies. One organization has been trying to educate the public about the correct way to adopt a rabbit and avoid buying them illegally. NTD's Eileen Ang brings us more. These healthy rabbits are well cared for and are waiting to be adopted. They are under the care of a nonprofit organization called the Bunny World Foundation that has been promoting animal care since 2008. I would like people to really take time to understand that these are not just Easter gifts. These are sentient beings who feel, who cry, who love, who live up to 15 years. So it's not something that you buy for Easter and then you discard it the next day. Hadro Maratrovich discourages people from buying bunnies at the pet store that aren't fixed. She says people should adopt one from a rescue who are already vaccinated, spayed, neutered and defleed. Please don't buy babies because they are a complete nightmare if they survive. A lot of these babies are too young um, when they're taken away from their mothers. Their immune systems are completely trashed and um, they won't make it. And if they do, you'll probably get rid of them because they're not fixed. And it's very expensive to fix the bunny. So you're better off taking the bunny from the, from the rescue. And here is Lolita Rose will say the same thing. She says rabbits are creatures of habit and are high maintenance, but not difficult. People can still go to work during the day. All you have to do is make sure that they have what they need and you do a little, we call it a treat test. You take a piece of banana, apple, carrot, and you test. And if the bunny takes it, something that they really love, you're good, you can go to work. When you come back home, treat test again. Give, give the bunny your you know, his or her favorite uh, treat and then if they take it, you're good. Rabbits also need to be brushed every six to eight weeks. Hadra Moratovich says giving bunnies the same love and affection as a family member gives them emotional support. There is a legend that says that the bunnies that you have in this life are the children from your past lives, which is very spooky. <laughs> you know, it's like, how many children did I have? <laughs> the foundation has rescued over 15,000 bunnies since its inception. They work with six city shelters and rescue about 80 bunnies per month. And in the UK, two chocolatiers at Cadbury have worked several days to create a chocolate egg with a difference. This story comes from NTD's Neil Woodrow. Two Cadbury World chocolatiers have designed a monster Easter egg to celebrate the holiday. Dawn Jenks and Donna Olivan spent three days crafting the chocolate colossus, which stands at three feet tall. They made the egg in two halves first and finished it with its own lighting system. We built it up, layers of chocolate, and then hand um, uh, sculpted animals, trees, and pipe flowers, and just put it all together to make a nice 3D effect. 
Dawn has a little uh, light at home and she had the uh, perfect idea of bringing a little remote control light and we can switch it on at the back so it just gives a nice sort of feel to it. The inside of the egg features an intricate woodland scene. I sculpted all the wood effects into the egg as well. Um, and then Donna does all the illustrations for the animals inside. And then we just kind of pipe the flowers together. The 40 kilogram egg weighs the same as nearly 900 regular bars of dairy milk. Cadbury World will be displaying it to visitors over Easter. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.